Welcome to Scotland on Shrooms. This podcast is dedicated to exploring Scotland's relationship with all things fungi and our place in the fungal revolution that's happening worldwide right now. I'm Lynn, your host, and I am not an expert, but probably just like you, I love fungi in all of their forms. And while I'm not the expert, I am really looking forward to meeting those who are. Scotland's mycologists, artists, business folk and storytellers who dedicate their lives and their creative practices to improving ours through the power of mushrooms and fungi. Let's explore Scotland on Shrooms. Welcome to another episode of Scotland on Shrooms. Today we are talking crap, or rather about the fungi that grow from it. My guest today is DH42, who is an enthusiast of coprophilic fungi, otherwise, and I think much more musically known as dung fungi. Um, He's based in Scotland and through his Facebook group, UK and Europe Coprophilus Fungi, he's creating an international network of coprophilic fungus files. And as soon as I saw his page, I knew I had to get in touch to explore this really niche area of fungal life. Full disclosure, this is the second time that we've recorded because we did it the first time and my computer just cut out and died. And in the interim, um, between recording that and now, we've actually met each other, which is super cool. So yeah, DH42, would you like to just tell us a little bit about your interest in coprophilic fungi and also explain just a little bit about how we met, because it was so nice to actually see you in person. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's nice to be recording this for um, uh, for a second time. We met, <laughs> it's, we met at the, was it, was it Earth Day, I think it was? Yeah, it was Earth Day, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, was, so at the Botanic Gardens, there was a talk that was given, that was organised by the London and fungus network um and the the speakers were brit bunyards who's the he's the editor of fungi magazine which i think is the largest journal slash magazine in uh in the us and also professor roy watling who is uh he's a really really well really esteemed great mycologist um i think he's from yorkshire originally but he's spent most of his life working and living in scotland um so it was really it was a really cool talk it was uh there's over 100 people i think there there's quite a good turnout and uh yeah and so so we met there and that was that was really fun it was proper awesome um and i was really surprised at the you think i wouldn't be because i started a podcast about mushrooms but i was genuinely surprised at the number of people who showed up to that to that whole thing and i think um brit also does he also runs the telluride mushroom festival yeah which is absolute goals i think for for any mushroom fan have you any aspirations to go i think i don't know i i think it'd be really cool to to go if, if i was in the area certainly i think it's actually starting in about two weeks or something and um that's probably a very good place to meet every mycologist in north america i think they probably loads of people probably are gathering there but um I don't know where they do it. Is it Oregon or somewhere like that, or or Colorado or some? I can't remember where it is. Yeah, I think it's in it's the town. I think it's the town Telluride in Colorado, and it just the photos and everything from it just look absolutely incredible. Like there's parades and people have their mushroom costumes, and yeah, it just sounds like it sounds like a bit of a hoot. <laughs> but yeah, it was really cool to to meet you and some of your uh, pals from. Is it the Edinburgh Mycological Society? Have I got that right? Or yeah, it's the. Um, I came with the. I, I don't actually. I think it's essentially there's two names. It's the Edinburgh University Fungi Society or Edinburgh University Mycology Society. But it's it's broad. It's, it's all the same sort of thing. It was. Um, but yeah, so we we were there, and then there's also the the Dundee University's 
um, mycology society. Um, it was quite cool to see, and then people like um, you know, like David Satori and lots, lots of these other people that we've just seen, uh, you know, seen online, and then suddenly everyone there's a face attached to everybody. It was it was really cool. It was awesome. I don't know about you, but I found it a little bit overwhelming actually when I met all these people that I'd met online or have followed them on Instagram or whatever, and I was like just in a room full of them. Yeah, it was really nice. But by the end of it, I think I was all mushroom chatted, networked out. But it was super lovely. Uh, to see everybody um so yeah thank you for being up for coming back after a technical <laughs> issue and um, the first time that we recorded i wanted to ask you first and foremost before we kind of dive into your niche area of interest i just wanted to ask you when did you first realize that you were a mushroom person when did they first grab you properly uh it was probably about well i've always been interested in some aspect of nature in some respect either insects or birds or even fish things and just uh and plants as well um so i've been interested in that area for pretty much all my life and then it was probably maybe lockdown or just before lockdown some sometime around there um when i was living in sterling it started to notice them in probably about september in the Oco hills which are just that range just north of sterling started to notice you know the more the the, the closer you got to the grass the more the more you looked at them in the hills the more of these different shaped and different colored fungi there were and they tried to identify some of them and ended up realizing quite quickly that it was quite hard and there was quite a lot of, of fungi um and i eventually i once came across some mushrooms which were growing on some like old cow dung and there was just something weird about them um i think they actually had so the thing that really grabbed my attention was that uh, at the base of the stipe like the stem of, of one of the mushrooms it had turned blue and I'd known at that point that, you know, if it is it often turning like a blue coloration is an indicator of it being um, like a psychedelic mushroom. And mm-hmm. I'd know, like, I didn't know that we had anything like that that grows on dung in the UK. So, I th- so it didn't quite add up. So I took some photos of it and put it on some forums online and um, people started to say different things. And one of the species that came up was psilocybe thymateria. Um, so I, I kept, so I asked, I, I was asking around, um, I, I asked, I, I emailed Professor Watling, who I mentioned who spoke before, because he's actually the, I mean, he, he actually, essentially him and uh, somebody called P.D. Orton, they, they, like, they, they were the first people to officially like, uh, describe the species, uh, subfimitaria in Rannoch in Perthshire in the 1960s. So not too far. Uh, it was named Strafaria. Uh, and then it got transferred by Roy into suicide but anyway um, so I was asking a few people around I asked I stayed behind at the end of one of a uh, talk by Merlin Sheldrake after the book signing just so I could nice. without a book but just so I could just ask him about this uh, and he deferred to a book called Psilocybin Mushrooms of the World by Paul Stamets mm-hmm. um, who's probably a lot of people will have heard of and the information there was conflicting it didn't make sense with the other with, with other things online. So I, was, I basically couldn't figure out exactly what these mushrooms were. Um, but eventually, I, through sending some off to a lab in Spain, um, managed to confirm with gene, with multi-gene sequencing um, that these were, these were in fact psilocybe fumitaria. Um, and I think those, and that was the first instance of psilocybe fumitaria being sequenced in scotland uh maybe the uk I and mean, of course that doesn't mean of course it was well known to live to grow there before but that was the first time it was 
the sequence was uploaded to GenBank. So, and from that point on, and just through that whole process of trying to figure out what these mushrooms were, um, I started a, a, a subreddit, like a community on the website Reddit, dedicated to this fungus and just for like people to record it around the world. So I've been just gathering a lot of information on it and, and studying it. And just on this this journey, I've learned or try or tried to learn about coprophyllic fungi in general. Um, and yeah, I've just fallen completely down the rabbit hole. And yeah, I'm lo- I've lost I'm lost all sight of light. I'm deep in this rabbit hole now. <laughs> That's gorgeous. So before we um, we jump down that rabbit hole with you, I just want to go back to a couple of the names that you mentioned there. So you you spoke about Paul Stamets and Marilyn Sheldrake. Would you mind just kind of clarifying who they are just for people who haven't heard about them before? Yeah, of course. So um, Paul uh, Stamets or Stamets, what Paul will call him, um, he's, a, he's a very famous American mycologist. He's, he, he's part of quite a lot of papers, like in, uh, I know he co-authors a lot of, research papers. I don't know if he's a professor or not, but I know he's certainly very famous and he's very good at getting people into the actual area itself. So he's, you know, he's done lots of talk. He's done like TED talks, podcasts, things like that. Um, he's, he's, he's really good at that. Uh, and he's got some businesses where he sells like maybe turkey tail based products and things like that. And he, so, and then he wrote this book called Psilocybin Mushrooms of the World. So he knows a considerable amount about psilocybin cubensis, which is the that's the, the the probably the most famous recreational one used in the world and definitely in America. And he's I think he's done a lot of uh, he's done a lot of work on the actual cultivating of psilocybin mushrooms. Just to jump in, sorry. So I actually um, I saw him on. Please forgive me because I'm not a fan, but it was because it was Paul. I was like, I need to listen to this. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast and he talked about taking panther caps. So yeah, the sort of sister, which is not very scientific, but I associate them with Amanita muscaria, the fly agaric stuff. Like it has a similar sort of vibe and they're both Amanita's panther caps as well. And um, yeah, he was talking about that and it sounded like a deeply unpleasant experience. But yeah, he was on Fantastic Fungi. So if anyone listening has seen that on Netflix, then you'll um, you'll have seen Paul talking about his experience first psychedelic experience with mushrooms and how they stopped to stutter and yeah i think it's fungi perfectes his company um i'm not affiliated by the way so like neither am i (laughs) if anyone from fungi perfecte was like hey we could be that would be excellent but (laughs) i'm not advertising i'm just sharing knowledge (laughs) but yeah he's he's probably like the superstar mycologist of the world right now yes he is he's um yeah certainly he's very good for getting people into the you know that first stage and then i And then I think opinions sort of, some opinions kind of waver a bit. But, you know, I think he's very, I think he's very good at that, that, that first stage of getting people from knowing nothing just to being interested. And, um, and Marilyn Sheldrake as well. You mentioned uh, him and his book. Yeah, he's a really cool guy who's, um, he's, he's a, I think he's English and he wrote Entangled Life, which was, which is a really famous, well, quite famous book in this area where he talks a lot about the mycorrhizal networks and, uh, their interaction with plants and uh, generally the the usefulness of fungi or the sort of the use of fungi that we take for granted um, you know just to do with general soil health and things um, so that his books had a great impact for him like I so I have entangled lives as well and for me I think it's probably one of the first pieces of kind of like popularly consumed either literature or media I suppose is the best word for it and um, that sort of 
brings to the public consciousness like the actual function of the wood wide web i think wood wide web was something that we'd heard about previously but we didn't really understand the mechanism for it um he really brought to the fore the the importance of fungi and those uh to actually create that web and how it actually functions and that book is just it's brilliant it's huge but it's not a slob like i saw the size of it and i thought oh this might be a bit um might be a bit challenging but it's just such an easy accessible read i absolutely loved it and while we're on paul and um merlin there's someone who's associated with both of them who has an association again with the the coprophilus fungi and the kind of psychedelic element that we've spoken about so tens mckenna who's an incredibly interesting um individual well worth looking into for those of you who are interested in like the origins of consciousness what it means to be a person um and the psychedelic experience um so him and paul stamets and Oh, I cannot remember Merlin Sheldrake's dad's name, but they were all friends. Is it Cos- Cosmo Sheldrake? Or it was, was Rupert. Yeah, it was Rupert who was sort of part of that kind or of Rupert general Sheldrake, philosophical yeah. psychedelic gang. And um, I, can- I would love to have been a fly on the wall in some of the mm. in some of the sessions that they had. Um, but Terence McKenna talks about the origins of human consciousness and how potentially it was psychedelic mushrooms that caused us to be able to do the things that we can do that set us over and above the animal kingdom. So we operate with something else that's not just instinct. We have mind, we have an ability to to create, to imagine, to project into the future, to empathize, to understand in a way that um, in a way that other animals just don't do. And um you're probably familiar with this, but for for those of you uh, listening who aren't um familiar with the stone date hypothesis, Terence McKenna has hypothesized that due to psychedelic fungi, well, well, fungi with a psychedelic effect growing on animal dung, when we as a species sort of came down out of the trees and started to expand our diet from a purely fruit-based one to a more omnivorous diet, as we started to travel across plains following animals for food, we were ingesting mushrooms that had a psychedelic effect and it could potentially was his hypothesis it could potentially be that that um catalyzed the human experience and human thoughts and human interaction um as we have it now and there's something just so brilliant and quite poetic about yeah human consciousness emerging from the results of crap like <laughs> essentially nihilistic but i think there's something really beautiful and like cyclical about it um so when you said when i kind of discovered you and your kind of your uh coprophilic fungi um interest um i wondered if that might be something that you had um that you'd heard of before or yeah or come into contact with and i don't know if you have have you um yeah i've, I've i have come across that um because it's certainly it's very alluring to it like you really want to believe that it's true it's totally alluring totally that's yeah. the best word for it yeah but the I've, I've looked into it a little bit and i think and the conclusion i reach is that it, it really does remain as a hypothesis more than a natural theory and i think it's possible terence mckenna who did advocate advocate this theory i think he pr- maybe didn't believe it as he didn't fully believe it himself maybe i think he was like postulating like an interesting idea but the idea i think is that that in the, uh, that it was trying to explain explain why how the human brain grew quite rapidly over a few mm-hmm. hundred thousand years, and the idea is that the 
because of the psychedelic nature of specifically psilocybin mushrooms, the way it affects the brain is it causes neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, um, which is pretty, which is established now, um, and that's like creating new neural pathways, um, especially affecting the language aspect of our brain, which is part of organize, which then leads into organization, communication. Um, so these sorts of things could help. I think the argument is then that these developments in these areas then allowed human uh, humans as a uh, like as a species to to expand and develop and modernize i mean modernize in like the very early sense of course but yeah the uh, it's interesting but there are other arguments there are other reasons for uh, for what, how people try to explain the brain expanding quite rapidly and one of them is uh it's like that we so we started to cook meat cook food and then we got a better balance of nutrients something like that um i maybe it's uh, there's probably lots of factors but i reckon uh in the more boring realistic sense i reckon probably the impact of psychedelics has been limited to cultural impact so the uh the aztecs the mayans the olmecs i think so the, the south uh, central and south america there's evidence that these have been used and and these are especially psilocybin or mushrooms with psilocybin in them there's also another link to coprophyllic fungi, which is there's a there's a fungus called Psilocybe hispanica, which grows on um, on horse dung in the in in a region either in the Pyrenees or near the Pyrenees. They found some cave paintings that were about six to eight thousand years old, um, and they they depicted about thirteen little mushrooms with pointy-ish caps slightly unbonnet pointy caps so not so almost like a witch's cap but a little bit flatter like if it's like if the top had been shrunk into it um with with curvy stems with wiggly stems um and then there was a if i'm remembering it correctly i think there was i think there were two bulls and a stag uh near them and then some people as well and it's been hypothesized that this could that this could be a link between the, the cows and the the mushrooms, which actually fits descriptions um, or depictions of what psilocybe hispanica, known from that region, looks like today. So that so mm-hmm. it, you know it could it could have been used. This was only a few thousand years ago, of course. And the stone date hypothesis is thinking um, much much longer, but I think there is probably a cultural element where psychedelic mushrooms have been used, but whether it's actually affected the like the our, our genome, as some people have, have claimed, I think that's quite unlikely. Yeah, thanks for falling down into that particular rabbit hole with me. I appreciate it. Um, although I am still, yeah, I don't. I think I'm. It's something you said that was really interesting around. You know, it's limited to like kind of cultural practice, but those cultural practices that we know about, I think they had to emerge from somewhere, and the ability for us as a species to be able to engage in cultural practice had to emerge um, from somewhere. And there's there's a romantic with a capital R part of me that's just like, yeah, yeah. How amazing would it be if our if our propensity for kind of cultural activity and our love of language, music, um, communication and all of that brilliant stuff that we do so well started because of a, a mushroom growing out of a piece of cow crap i just it's just brilliant yeah. well, anyway, I, I want to believe it but yeah. I, I mean it might be true. i don't know we probably don't know no we don't um, yeah that's the thing um but so it's, we, it's true and not true 
It's one of those, isn't it? Um, mm. So we, um, I said before we fall down a rabbit hole, let's just quickly talk about Marilyn Sheldrake and um, Paul Stamets and the work that they do. And then we fell down a Terence McKenna rabbit hole, which is always a good place to go. However, <laughs> um, it'd be really great just to hear from you more about the actual the fungi that you find so interesting and yeah more about what they do what how they behave and how they affect the environment um that sits around them as well yeah so um so probably the a good way to start with that would be to describe very brief like as much as we know about the uh, the life cycle of coprophytic fungi so the ones that i've studied the most have been ones which grow on horse and cow uh, horse and cow dung essentially uh, and then mostly up here in Scotland. And most of the fungi that grow on dung are obligate and host-specific host sometimes, or probably obligate is probably a better word to use, which essentially means they only grow on dung. Okay. There are some fungi that will grow in different, that will grow in different areas, uh, including dung and sometimes not dung, but most of the fungi that you get on dung they specifically only grow on dung. However, there is also there is a lot of overlap often between different animals, different species of animals, dung. So some can grow on on horse uh, and cow dung. Some uh, some grow on red deer, sheep, um, also grouse, mouse, and mice, mice things like that. There's you do get fungi that grow on carnivore dung, but but nobody wants to study them for obvious reasons. <laughs> That's fair. You say for obvious reasons. Um, for those of us who aren't quite as well acquainted with different types of poo, could you just let us know why that would be a bad idea? Well, so if you think of uh, basically of like dog poo, that's mostly broken down by bacteria anyway. But so the, the thing about coprophilic fungi is it's large, it's to, essentially to do with the, let's say we've got a, a cow and it eats some grass, which has the spores on it. Mm. Uh, and then the spores and go through the digestive uh, tract and then they end up in the in the cow pat and it's that process that for a lot of them that starts the germination process and there's it's a very different it's a very different uh, composition that herbivore dung and carnivore dung so you know it's i mean it's complete it's one's just essentially chewed up grass and one's very different so we just focus on herbivore dung cool but um yeah, so let's. So one thing that's interesting is with them is that you get quite a strict, a fairly strict uh, succession, as in you get certain fungi grow at certain times, and it's they generally follow an order. Although there's obviously a lot of overlap and exceptions, but generally they follow an order. So, and you can notice this if you uh, if you take some and put some in a, it's called like an incubation chamber. It's basically just a box that you can keep moist in, indoors. And what you'll notice is in the first maybe maybe three to five days, you'll get uh, you'll get one of the divisions of fungi called, it used to be called zygomycota, and it's now been split into two, but as everything, as always changes with fungi, but we'll stick to zygomycota. You'll get mm-hmm. some interesting fungi, for example, are called, um, it's a genus called polybolus, also known as dung cannons. And they're these, these tiny, they're probably about no more than, I don't know, a centimeter-ish tool, maybe maybe less, and they're, they're these small transparent cylinders with like an oval-shaped inflated head at, at the top facing up, and they'll grow very early on in the first few days. And they've got something; they've got like a vesicle, like a, a spore. They've got a, a sac at the top, and on the top of that is something called the sporangium, which is this black disc with a few hundred spores in it. 
Okay. And what these what these do is they they've got the type of spore dispersal they have um, is phototropic, so it follows light. And in the wild, these fungi will start in the you know the morning. They'll follow the they'll track the sun as it comes up. And when it's roughly at its peak, they will through there's a lot of water builds up in this sac, which is built up through osmotic osmosic. You know, I know through water basically expanding, and it shoots this sporangium up as high as it can go, and it shoots it extremely quickly, even though it's it's very small because it's trying to get it away from the dung. Um, it, I think it accelerates something like 45 miles an hour in the first what? millimeter so it's a huge amount of huge acceleration um it's something like twenty thousand g's that are exerted on it and so but it's so small of course the air resistance is such that it it only goes a few meters but even a few meters is, is very far for fungi and it, so th- then this gets caught up in the air current ideally and it blows as far away from the dung as it can and so that's the spore dispersal for this um, this genus called Pelobolus. So wait a minute, like you're telling me that I could be walking out in a field, like walking my dog or like whatever I'm doing out for a ramble and I pass by a cowpat and from that cowpat, these little spore discs are being fired into the air at like 20,000 Gs and they're accelerating at a ridiculous rate and it's just happening and yeah. you can't really it's you know you it's not something that you're necessarily going to be like made aware of in the environment but how incredible that this really interesting forceful process is happening and you just have no idea you look at something and you just think well that's just a, a pile of cow dung and it's actually just an incredibly active brilliant little microverse of yeah interesting activity going on that's so cool thank you yeah no there's there's so much there's a lot of stuff happening just on the surface and also under it as well there's lots of the um so the other so that was the the roughly the zygomycota which is one of the like upper divisions of fungi then you have ascomycota which uh you'll often see these if you see these on dung you might if you you might sometimes see lots of like orange discs shaped things okay yeah a lot of them are actually either sitting underneath the surface or or you just or they're just too small to see but these sorts of these fungi will appear probably from a week to a, a few weeks in uh, and they also shoot they have a different mechanism for shooting their spores they've got lots of things called a, a little an ascus which is like a tube of usually four or eight spores and they just shoot them out but they don't go as far um, and then as the dung continues to you know, as time continues to pass, then you'll get the what are called the basidiomycetes, which are the the gilled fungi that everybody just thinks of as a mushroom. You know, mm-hmm. like a, there's a st- there's a stem and a cap with gills under it. Um, so they they're the they come at the end or, or the the they're like the final group of mushrooms or fungi to appear on the dung. Um, and then the mushroom that I'm interested in, sort of side fumitaria, that's that's one of these. So it appears it appears at the end of the succession after you know the, when the dung is really a few months old often near winter and there's a few different explanations for why certain dung certain fungi sorry appear at different times you say sorry but i think dung is like the dung next guy. yeah <laughs> that's a brilliant portmanteau for mycologists there we go dung love it you've coined a phrase <laughs> yeah that's a, yeah abbreviation for it but um where was I? Yeah, so there's a few different explanations for why the fungi appear at certain times. One of them is simply to do with the available nutrients. So the 
the ones that I mentioned, the pilobolus, the dung cannons that, that, that appear in the first few days, the, they could be eating the, the simple sugars, the very easy to digest compounds. And so their whole growth process just happens in a few days, like the mycelium spreads, eats, and then develops the fruiting body. You know, the fruiting body is developed usually at the end of the life cycle. It's, it's like when the, once the fungus has used up its food source and it's like, right now I need to, I need to spread the spores and go. And then at the other end of the spectrum or the other end of the scale, you've got the, the larger guild things. Um, and these could be eating, these could be decomposing compounds such as lignin, which is the a compound in most plants that, that gives them that it's like it gives trees the hard their hardness. Um, so it's quite a tough compound and it's found in grass as well. So they could be they could be um, degrading these that takes a long time. It could also be because um, and this is something that Cameron, the who's the the president of Elfie, he told me he thought it could be is just simply because they're bigger, they take a lot more, they're just generally slower growing. So it's maybe not even that. Oh, okay. it's, it's maybe nothing. It could just be literally that bigger things take a lot longer to get going. And they also towards the end, you know, when it's like November, the ground is also, is usually very wet and it's, it's cold. It's, you know, it's five, 10 degrees. So the, the moisture doesn't evaporate that much. So these bigger guild fungi, they need a lot of water because fungi are rough. They're roughly 90% water. So they need a huge amount of water to inflate. Right. So that could be one of the reasons why the bigger ones appear at the end. And also an interesting thing about the, the decomposition of the dung itself. Uh, I can't remember which way around it is, but I think in, I think in the, the dung and the urine from the animal, there's a lot of, I think it's nitrates that then get broken down into ammonia or the other way around. Uh, but essentially, it, incre it, it increases the acidity, so it lowers the pH of the dung, and it can mm -hmm. actually be very specific. Like one, you could have one end of the dung could be uh, could be neutral, uh, and the other end could be slightly acidic, and you'd have different species. You might have a stropharia growing at one, and then a, a coprinoid growing on the other. So it, it can be really, really specific habitats. Um, and they also, and this is going back to the the beginning of the the process. Let's say once the this is particularly with horses, once it they've um once the dung has landed on the floor the horses won't eat the area around it so the grass is going to grow up a little bit longer around it and they don't eat it because probably two reasons one of them is because the grass is just a bit more bitter but as the you know as the the as it rains and it seeps into the soil the, right, the grass okay. picks up the this the, the like ammonia and stuff and they don't like the taste of the grass but also it could just be a behavioral phenomenon where they you know, there's a lot of parasites, especially if you've looked at, um, as I have, if you've looked at dung fungi under microscopes, and then you've also looked at concurrently at pieces of dung, it's just absolutely full of nematodes and, uh -huh. and different worms and all that. It's pretty horrible stuff. So the horses yeah. don't want Ooh. to eat that area. It's called sometimes the, uh, like the zone of repugnance around the The zone the of repugnance. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember where I, I've, I've read that, but I've seen that term being used. Um, and that's why if you look in some horse paddocks, you can, it, it, sometimes they're not, you know, if the, dung, if the horse's dung is left there, if it's not picked up, you get these, these big clumps of grass. Um, but then these clumps of grass that the horses don't eat around, in turn, help create a, a good habitat for fungi as they, as they, especially in the summer months, they create a bit of shade and they keep the moisture content a little bit higher up. Dung is also very good at regulating moisture content. So 
Um, yeah, so it, it all feeds together to create quite an interesting, or quite quite a good area for fungi to grow. That's incredible. And like, I so you sent me a a really nice wee photo the other day of just the clumps of grass, and I think that. There's so much of this stuff around mushrooms and and fungi that it's so easy to walk past. It's so easy to not pay attention or to not think that there's stuff going on there. So the photograph that you sent me, you know, I would have I would have walked past that had we not had a conversation about this previously um, and not known what the cause of that was and maybe not even thought about it. But as soon as you know about this stuff, as soon as you know that there are dung cannons on little bits of cowpat as soon as you know that these um areas are the way they are because of animal habits and poop falling and fungi doing their thing you can't unknow it and you start to read the world in a slightly different way and i think that's really interesting so thank you for sharing that bit with us not at all there's a there's also yeah it, it, that point you're making about like you can just walk past it and you don't realize how much is going on at just a different scale i mean that does i suppose that's really that occurs quite a lot throughout nature. Um, it just it's when you, it's when you get people who just get so like infatuated with an area and they they start to notice this uh, this like complex like fractal yes. expanding of, of information. There's um one other really cool thing uh, on fungi, which is not strictly a it's a type of fungus. It's not strictly coprophilic because it's not part of that dung uh, herbivore uh, life cycle. But it exists in the in the the mycosphere or whatever you call it, like the you know the the habitat around it. There's a, a fungus called um, Balocephala verrucospora, and unfortunately, I don't know of any uh, more digestible name than that than the scientific name. But it's been recorded twice in the Pentland Hills, just um, so you, the ones cool. just south of Edinburgh, um, by Mike Richardson, who's one of the the main experts on coprophilic fungi and it's a fungus that it infects tardigrades which are these tiny yeah, little water, thing, bears, like water yeah. bears that, yeah well it, it's these sorts of things that it affect he's found it while studying other dung fungi on sheep's dung and tardigrades had been infected by it and then they got this the summit to yep. disease whilst the the fungus took over the tardigrade and forced it to climb up to the highest point of the of the sheep's dung and that and that's similar to ophiocordyceps Unilateralis or Militaris, I can't remember. You know the what's it called? Um, yes. The Last of Us. Yeah, the zombie it's, fungus. Um, it's that same theme. Yeah, the zombie fungus makes the zombie ants. It's so it's that same same theme, and it happens with um, it can happen on dung fungi as well. But um, I was speaking to Mike about this, and he was saying that essentially we can't, you couldn't really say this is a coprophilic fungi, um, not just because of the fact that it's it's not part of that new, that cycle. Of being eaten, but also just because the two times this, this almost microscopic fun, um, thing has been found, just because they're, they've been both on sheep's dung, it doesn't mean it could also not be happening in grass elsewhere. But um, it's something interesting that has happened on on dung as well, like a little battle of yeah. life and death that we just yeah, there's don't see. Past and just yeah, we would look at it and hope that we didn't step in it because it would just get on our shoes and that would be it. But yeah, there's. There's all sorts of drama and zombification happening um, just on little pieces of sheep poo. Amazing. Um, so like you, you're not a mycologist. So you're like me in that you, I mean, to say you're like me, you have a much more scientific bent to your, to your relationship with fungi than I do. But I just wanted to find out from you, you know, like you're not a mycologist by trade, if not by habit. But um, 
what role does citizen scientists have to play? Like, how do people get involved in this stuff and actually finding things out and creating community like you did with your subreddit and all that good stuff? Um, well, luckily with with mycology, um, there's there is a there is a very large role for, as you describe, citizen scientists, um, just essentially amateurs who we're not, you know, people we're not getting paid for. It. There's no there's no incentive other than the act in itself. Um, it's quite an. Ex- I think it's quite an accessible. Once you get past some of the complicated terminology, but then also people just use complicated terminology sometimes to, uh, you know, to, to just sound a bit more clever. But th- there are some there's some terms you have to get past. But once you can, once you get into the world a little bit of mycology, you can you can make an actual difference to various areas of research and things. What one of the easiest ways actually is just by simply going out photographing things. Um, trying to identify it and and mapping distributions um and there are there are things like i uh i naturalist and um mushroom observer and even just gen- just facebook groups and things you can record the distribution of fungi that you found and you may not think it important but there could be somebody who's out there studying it and this you know it, it could just be a part of a, a wider puzzle and this is something that happened actually even just a few days ago something quite interesting happened so as I'm studying this suicide fumitaria, somebody had, through some website, had had found some in Iceland, and it's so far not been. Re- this is the furthest west that the species have, has been officially recorded, and this is just some random guy who did also go through the same process I did with sending off to be sequenced. But you know, this is not a pay. This is not. This is not a scientist, and he's he, he's actually just spread out the species, the distribution range of a fungus by. Uh, hundreds or maybe a thousand miles so you can have impacts in these ways that's awesome that's really wonderful because i think there's some people it can feel like quite an exclusive thing to get into like i say if if you're not of a scientific bent but you're just curious you can still make an impact and still be able to participate in furthering our collective understanding of a really quite misunderstood and not particularly well resourced area of research that might very well yeah be able to change the world in some ways which is really cool yeah there's a there's a lot of i I think there's not too many barriers to entry really so like a friend of mine and i are working on a on a paper discussing uh psilocybe fimitaria and psilocybe liniformans which are two species that we get in the uk uh and in other parts of europe that are quite similar because they grow in in the same habitat and we, you know, we neither of us have any scientific background or anything, but because we've been going out in the field and and recording and observing them as much as we can, and then also we we've built up these other communities where we can gather data from other people's recordings, we can we can actually create something which it doesn't have. To, I don't think we're probably not going to get it into a proper journal or anything, but you know, we're still we're still yeah, yeah. adding to some form of literature or some form of understanding of species in some sense even if it's just distribution but yeah so so it is it is quite it's really fun and and as you said i i have absolutely no scientific background but it's just stuff that you can you pick up as uh the longer you you stay in the in that that's world. so wonderful so i guess the takeaway messages from this particular chat is that you can enter this world and make a difference and find out new information and share that with people whose you know whose life it is to to study this stuff even though it's not necessarily your own profession and also you know you can be walking past a field and in one step you know avoid a cow pat 
upon which there are tiny little dung cannons firing out their spores at a ridiculous rate and then, you know, come across some sheep poo whereby there's, um, yeah, some zombie tardigrades crawling about on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Thank you so much for your time and, um, yeah, for sharing your interest. It has just been such a pleasure to chat with you. Really appreciate you um, coming on to Scotland on Shrooms. Thank you, DH42. No worries. Thanks. Thank, no, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. See you very soon. Take care. See you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Scotland on Shrooms. If you or someone you know would like to be featured on the podcast, please just email me scotlandonshrooms at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you.